Good afternoon. Welcome to Flat Out Recovery. And hello, Casey. Hello. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to see you again. And welcome back. It's great to see you again, too. And you are here with us to talk about, well, among other things, to talk about your book, Spirituality uh, yes. for People Who Hate Spirituality. I'll fully admit that the title occurred to me first, and I thought, oh, man, now I need to write that book. So, oh, great. <laughs> I think you're right about this thing about sense of connection rather than just connection. How did you reach that conclusion? Was it evidentially or was it just this is the sense I have? A little more intuitive that way. And just through my own experience, through working with clients, through working with other people in recovery, and just really sitting down, I mean, in, over the course of writing the book, partly as well. Because what happened with this book is I went in thinking like, okay, I know something about this. But I, I mean, there's no way anybody knows everything there is to know about spirituality. So I did a lot of research. I learned a lot while I was writing the book. And then just sitting with people and talking with them and then kind of sitting and meditating and thinking yeah. like, okay, what is it? Is it actual connection? Can I prove it's connection? So it's maybe more of the scientific mindset and just thinking, well, you can't prove that, but I can definitely yeah. say people get a sense of connection and that maybe is what matters. Yeah. Because as I read further on, of course, I take the point definitely about Cartesian skepticism, because I think if anything, we're all possessed of a degree of that when we walk into recovery, even if we didn't have it before, because walking into this completely new environment, I'm going to doubt everything because it goes against everything I've ever known. And it's then accelerated. It's, it's not even, I'm going to doubt everything before I can prove certain things. And then I can say, yeah, this is mine. And these others, I'm still going to doubt. I actually just want to doubt everything. And I'm actually trying to disprove them. Oh, absolutely. Relatively early in my career working in the treatment field, I would just think like, why do people come in and just say, oh, you're doing this thing wrong at the treatment center and you should do it this way and this is wrong and that's wrong. Get on the phone with their family and say, I mean, everything here is wrong. And I think like, why are they doing that? You know, I mean, we can obviously always improve something, but why this huge push? And one day I went, oh, if they can prove the treatment center wrong, then they don't have to recover. Yes. You know, yeah. you can, if you can prove everything in recovery is wrong, then you don't have to do it. And now you have a fine excuse to not recover. And Unfortunately, especially in early recovery, but sometimes all the way down the line, there's some part of me that would love an excuse to not have to do all this, but I have better excuses to do it than to not do it. <laughs> yeah. But early in recovery, like you said, walking into recovery, whether it's treatment center, smart recovery, 12-step recovery, wherever it is that you go, you know, looking around and saying like, oh man, I'm not sure about this. I don't know. And the degree of that skepticism I find often goes with the degree of fear. And as I said in the book, you know, it's not the skepticism is inherently bad. It's just that I can take it overboard or I can apply it specifically and say, okay, you know, I can open my mind to all kinds of things. My best friend says, hey man, have you tried this new drug? And I go like, no, wow, let's try that out. You know, 10 years later, the same guy says, hey, have you checked out this spiritual way of life that totally enriches everything and makes it better? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> I don't know about I'll that try one. anything in pill form, but I'm not sure yeah, about exactly. that. Yeah, I think it's in the model that you get to, which is obviously a scientific one, and applying that to finding some sort of spirituality. I think it's really quite important to have something like that because on the one hand, I walk into recovery completely skeptical of everything around me. I've got to get through some degree of denial before I can even engage with being skeptical. Mm. And once I'm doing that, then I'm terrified of everything. But if it's broken down, I'm broken down in a way that's user friendly, which I think is important because it's all very well for me to think, well, yeah, I've read Descartes. Right. I can see this. 
I'm going to get my barrel of apples, I'm going to chuck it all on the floor, and I'm going to hold on to the ones that I know are not damaged or rotten. And of course, this means I've got enough to get going with. Mm-hmm. But of course, when I initially go in, everything is all rotten. Now, to get me past that, and also if I'm one of these many people in treatment that's not even reached the point of being sceptical, I'm just saying no, I need a simple model to follow. And in the same way as the 12-step model is a very simple model to follow, saying this is towards how you recover. If I'm going to get a hold of something like spirituality, I just need that one apple to start with. Mm-hmm. And if I've got a simple question to begin with, which is what you're positing in the book, then actually nobody can come out with that and say, no, no, I don't get it. Nobody can say, no, that couldn't possibly be true. And that's all we need is just the openness of mind to say, maybe. If we can get to maybe, if we can get to, ah, fine, I'll try it. If we can get to anything like that, we're off to a good start. And I'll tell you, I had a beautiful experience yesterday talking with somebody at a treatment center, well, actually at the treatment center where I work at Windmill Wellness Ranch out in Texas. I had somebody say to me, you know, I'm partway through reading your book, the spirituality one. And I, I must admit, being now I have two books, it's so much fun when somebody says, I'm reading your book and I get to say, oh, which one? (laughs) And he says, the spirituality one. I said, okay, great. How's it going? He says, well, reading about prayer right now. And he said, so I prayed for basically the first time ever in my life. And I don't know what I'm praying to. And I don't need to know. And I thought, that's it. Goal. That's it. We got it. That's like my greatest hope for the book is that someone would pick it up, look at it and say, okay, I could try this. Not you're right. Not you saved my life. Just I read this and I was willing to try. And I think like, man, that's it. That's what it's all about right there. And it's, it is. It's that application of doubt, isn't it? Because if yeah. we get beyond this idea of refuting everything, which is obviously what I start with in rehab, which is you don't know anything about me. You can't tell me what's happened to me. I'm special and different. I'm unique. I'm terminally unique. And only I know how I can do this. And anything you say to me is bollocks. Once I've got past that, if I've got any kind of reasonable doubt, then I've got no reason not to explore it. And it's that application of some degree of doubt that is going to get me towards applying some degree of open-mindedness. Hmm. We were talking about that this morning, actually, about how if you're not open-minded, you're going nowhere. But I have to have some doubt before I can be open-minded, I think. Yeah, and we need some balance. I actually wrote a little bit in the book about the idea that being open to the idea that there may be something for you and all that doesn't mean you have to just open your arms wide and everybody who comes along and says, hey, I've got a spiritual thing. And by the way, donate all your possessions to me. It doesn't mean you have to go in for everything. You just have to find anything that can work for you. And so there's going to be some balance. And I think in most cases, most people move towards that balance. They don't just start saying every spiritual concept that I've ever heard is mine. All I need is one, like you said, one apple out of the barrel to say, okay, yeah, there's something that I can go with. Don't even have to believe, just have to move towards and there was a beautiful book written by a guy named James Carse called The Religious Case Against Belief. Yeah. And it was such a great title that I thought, okay, I got to read this book. It's very deeply philosophical, very intellectual guy, very brilliant. Sort of the conceit of the book, he makes his case for if I believe something, then I'm saying I know this for certain. If I have faith in something or I keep my mind open, I have a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of like, I don't know for sure, but this is what's working for me right now. I thought, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. The sense of I don't know for sure. Which is agnostic, isn't it? Of course. It, it is. Well, sure. I'll, I'll, here, here, it's kind of fun in reading the book. I did a lot of like reading and say, like, okay, do I know for sure what this term means? And it turns out, of course, a number of the terms can mean different things to different people. So to be agnostic is to say, I don't know, but 
often is taken a step further saying, I can't know. I can't know for certain. And even further to say, no one can know for certain. Now, yeah. is that true? I get It's fun. I get to say, well, I, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it might be true that no one can know. All I know for right now is that I don't know for certain, but I know enough to move forward. Yeah. And also you go through in the book, the thing about people's conception of God and also of this blending of religion and spirituality that people have in their perception as a barrier and that there are some very powerful negative paragons in that you've got this is a picture of the catholic priest who did this at the place where i had to go to church and that suddenly becomes this all-encompassing image which synecdocally wipes away any other concept they can possibly have of the spiritual or the religious and i think there's a lot in these inherent beliefs certainly in the UK, in that this is religion. That is what religion means. Oh, spirituality must be part of that. And then the natural scepticism towards anything that's different or new. And spirituality is like this alien idea to most people in the UK when they walk in. It's just, it's practically might as well be a foreign language when they hear it. And I do think it's important to break down that difference between what is religion and what is gullibility as well that you mentioned in terms of your approach to all these things and what is spirituality and what it means to me or to you or to john or to jane or whatever because it is an individualized thing it doesn't have to be this collective thing to which we all subscribe yeah well something that i realized as i was going along and i realized this before i was writing the book but of course solidified it as i was putting in the print is that Everybody has an individualized thing, whether they want to or not. Like even if everybody's sitting together chanting the same words at the same time in the same location towards the same deity, religious figure, whatever, they still have an individualized idea. Like you sit down and talk to everyone who goes to the same church, mosque, synagogue, mm-hmm. clearing in the forest, whatever. But you start digging into it and they're all going to have their different idea of exactly what this all means and what it means to them and the function in their life, no matter how much they want to believe the exact same thing, you kind of can't. Everyone's going to end up with an individualized idea. And often those ideas, what I found in talking with people and just in my own journey, is that those ideas are very subconscious. Like People mm. don't realize they have an individualized idea. And they sometimes, until they sit down and think about it, don't have a clear idea of what it is they actually believe. And then we draw from all these sources, like I said, cultural sources, what we grew up around, our family of origin. We just draw on all these things. And we take that conception for granted. And so one of the things I hope to do when I talk to people and again, and write in the book was to look and say, let's make that a conscious choice instead of a subconscious choice. Wouldn't it be neat if you could just recognize, okay, I'm already kind of making up my own idea, even if I'm trying not to. So why don't I just make that a deliberate choice? I'm going to say, here's what I want to believe because people will sometimes say, well, you know, you, you can't just make something up. I'm going to say, well, I hate to break it to you. You're already making something up. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's too late. Even if, you know, your religious teacher of choice said, here, believe this, you're still going to put it through your own filters and your own culture and all your own everything. End up with something anyway. So why not just say, I'm going to do that on purpose and pick something that will work for you? Ah, he's here. Good hey. afternoon. Or I'm Hello. not quite sure what time it is in your part of the world, Casey. Good it's afternoon, a... <laughs> Richard. And, and good Casey, morning. good morning, sir. It's 8 a.m. out here. Perfectly reasonable. It's a, it's a tight time frame, this one, because yeah. sort of five o'clock in the evening will be a bit late for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Neil, we're talking about spirituality. 
which does tie in with what we were talking about the other week about Buddhism, I suppose. Yeah. And about how we find our own way as opposed to following someone else's. If I can go back, Katie, to the scientific schematic you, you have in the book about approaching spirituality, about asking those simple questions. Because I think for me and Neil, what we'd probably like to hear about is how we might apply those in a group. Sure. And I'll be honest with you, I love group work. You know, I'm a clinical social worker and doing group work is one of my favorite things because people learn and grow so much from each other. But it's one of those big subjects that you bring up is spirituality or being in a meeting and saying, what we're going to talk about today is God. And everyone goes, oh, (laughs) (laughs) where are we going here? But just understanding that word can mean whatever it is that you want it to mean for any person in the room. But once the group gets going, that sort of exploration so becomes a group exploration, which is also a big part of science. You know, I think the stereotype of a lot of scientists is the guy in the white lab coat working alone at midnight in the lab and going, oh, I found the great discovery. But the reality is, is, this, is science is an extremely collaborative process. In fact, really, you haven't really proven anything in science until everybody else looks it over and says like, well, have you thought about this? Have you asked that question? That sort of thing. So in terms of a group process, how to apply that scientific method, what I would say is, first of all, I talk about this when I'm teaching this subject to groups, when we're talking about spirituality and that sort of thing. So I will just go and talk to people and talk in the group and say, okay, you can take a scientific approach to this. If you're feeling skeptical about spirituality, and most are, then let's talk about how to take a scientific approach. And we kind of break down what is the scientific method. So it starts out as partly just being education, saying, Let's just go through what are the steps of the scientific method. And in fact, I'm going to be so bold as to grab the book here, partly because I don't want to misquote myself. <laughs> and uh, because it's always the best thing when an author says, well, what I say is this. And someone looks at your book and says, you didn't say that. You said this over here instead. Let's see here. So the even funnier part is when I flip through the book saying, okay, now where did I put this? Because I would have thought I put it in chapter five on what are some practical ways to do spirituality, perhaps under the section on prayer. Okay, well, some basic ideas on scientific method. First of all, you have to come up with a hypothesis. And that is going to be just an idea of something that may be true. And the beautiful thing with a hypothesis is you don't have to think it's true. Uh, In fact, that's one of the things that actually trips people up a lot of times in the scientific method is we go in saying my hypothesis must be true. But if you're going in as a good scientist, you're actually saying, you know what, let me just ask a question. Let's see if it's true. I have no idea. In fact, a great scientific outcome sometimes is proving the hypothesis is wrong. Yeah. So we want to keep as open a mind as possible. And saying that to a group kind of invites everybody in. If we say we want to keep our mind super open, we may or may not be wrong. I do the same thing when I'm teaching about addiction to the brain. I say, let's look at this whole disease model of addiction. We're not saying it's true. Let's just look to see if it's true. We have no idea. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's not. So same sort of thing. Maybe there's a spirituality for you. Maybe there's not. You can see people kind of relax a little bit with that. It's like, okay, nothing is being shoved down my throat here. So basically, there's my hypothesis. Actually, I'm going to back it up a step here. Found the section in the book. So the first thing I want to do is ask a question. Just could there be a spirituality for me? Second thing, do background research. Is there anything to prove it one way or the other? Has somebody already proven this experiment? And in this case, I'm going to say that's kind of hard to pull off. Then we want to form a hypothesis. So the hypothesis that I propose in the book is maybe prayer could help me. 
I don't say I'm going to prove that there's a higher power out there. I'm going to prove that there's not. I'm going to prove it works or doesn't work for anybody else. I'm just going to say, let's go see if praying could help me. You can then take that into any other question. Could spirituality benefit my life? Let's just see. And then we're going to either design or replicate an experiment that tests that hypothesis. So the simple one with prayer was pray. Let's pray a bunch. Let's see what happens. I was telling you, I was talking with somebody yesterday who said, hey, I'm partway through your book. And so practically the first time in my life, I sat down and prayed yesterday. And he said, I don't really feel much of anything. And then he laughed because he kind of knew. I was, I was like, yeah, well, one time out might not do it. <laughs> like any good scientific experiment, just getting one data point probably is not going to give you much of a graph to tell you what's going on. So you may have to gather data for a while. You may have to try whatever spirituality, whether it's you know spiritual practice, such as meditation, prayer, whatever. And so try it a little bit. Let's see what happens. I don't know for sure. Just keeping the open mind. And with any good scientific experiment, the more data you gather, the more likely your result is going to be on point. From that, then you can start to draw a conclusion. And if the hypothesis is strongly supported, move forward. No matter your results, communicate what you've learned and compare with what other researchers have found. Like I said, that's what makes it collaborative. And so in a group setting, that allows people to start to have a conversation. Now I'm going to assume in a group setting, you're going to have some people. They're going to say like, well, I prayed for a while and I didn't get what I wanted. But if I'm looking from a recovery context now, for instance, if I'm, say, working with a bunch of people that are looking to at least explore or consider 12-step recovery, I'm going to say, okay, well, let's see what previous researchers have found. In other words, if I turn to 12-step literature and say, what have previous people who worked 12-step recovery found? Well, they say right off the bat, don't bother praying for a whole bunch of stuff for yourself, like prayer for a puppy dog and a rocket ship and a great career <laughs> is not really going to get you very far. But what it does say is we've gotten a lot of great results from praying for a great attitude, for praying for peace of mind, for praying for direction. And that piece is really big because when you look at 12-step recovery, of course, a lot of people know it was highly influenced and could be argued to even have come out of the Oxford group. And the Oxford group had this idea that if they could get everybody to not pray for things and pray for outcomes, to pray for direction. If they could get everybody to pray for direction, but not just for direction, because the Oxford group would say, well, we have these four absolutes. So they'd say absolutely honest, absolutely loving, things like that. And you'd compare the results of your prayer, what you got back, the direction you were receiving against that. Does it seem loving? Does it seem kind? Does it seem honest? Is it encouraging me to be loving, kind, honest, that sort of thing? Then you're heading in the right direction. And their idea is if you could get everybody to do that, then we could achieve world peace. If you get all the world leaders to be praying for direction every day, not praying for outcomes, but for direction, then amazing things could happen in the world. As you may have noticed, that didn't actually go down. So that's, that was not the outcome everybody got, but it was a beautiful yep. thought. Well, the early practitioners of 12-step recovery grabbed onto that idea and said, okay, I don't know if we're going to get world peace out of this. I just need to stay sober. I'm just trying to survive here and maybe even keep my family together and maybe even not end up in an asylum or locked up. So... Let's just pray for direction every day. And so there's a lot of other people. If I take that scientific method and say, okay, no matter your results, communicate what you've learned and compare with what other researchers have found. And it turns out a lot of other researchers have found that praying for direction from a loving, kind, honest, make your own list source, then really good things can happen in your life. And I can say as my own scientific researcher in this, that has done wonders for me. And in a group setting as a social worker, I know I can do a certain amount of self-disclosure as long as it benefits the client. And so being able to say to people, hey, I've been there. I was super skeptical. I didn't want any part of this. 
I've been that guy who prayed for basically the first time and didn't feel anything. And I kept it up because you know what? I didn't like what I was getting not doing it. So let's try doing it for a while. Let's try the scientific experiment out and then getting some group discussion going around that. What's your experience been? Now, if you have a bunch of people that are all a week sober, you may not have anybody says, oh, hey, this worked great for me. So we can just talk about what are your doubts? Where's the skepticism? Where are you struggling with it? And just validate that's okay. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to think this is all a bunch of BS, but let's try it out anyway and just see what happens. Give it an honest shot. So that would be kind of my approach in a group, although I'd love to hear kind of your own experience or if that really kind of answers the question you're asking. I think it's an interesting approach. I think it's pretty similar to like what we've experienced in the past. You know, when I'm speaking to people like in and around that kind of stuff, uh, maybe coming across skeptical about a power greater than. I always bring it back to their experiences. And what you hear in the rooms a lot around here kind of thing is like maybe somebody doing the main talk, the main share from the top of the room. I don't know how you guys label that or explain it, but you'll hear something like this. When I was getting collared by that police officer and like, you know, I'm in front of the judge, I prayed then. You know, and like, you know, so I'll kind of say to somebody like, you know, what's your experience around? Have you ever prayed? And I kind of get them to look back at their experiences when they have, you know, and then bring it into, okay, so what made you do that? And make them answer their own questions. I loved when you talked about like the open mind, you know, um, to me, that's a scientific experiment right there in itself, just being open. You know, my mind was completely closed to, um, to anything but my will. Kind of thing, you know, I can sort this out. I can figure my way out of this because, um, because when I prayed in front of that judge and that judge said, you know, this time we're not going to sing to John, Mr. Price, but you know, I completely forgot that I prayed and I remembered that it was only me who got myself out of that situation. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Completely, you know, that delusional kind of thinking comes straight back into play. You know, I told the what we call solicitors, I think you guys call them, like, you know, the guy who represents you. Yeah, the lawyer. Oh, God, it's universal, Richard. There is like, a there universal is a... word, man. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, so the lawyer, and I will say, I told the lawyer to say this and that to the judge, and all of a sudden it was me who got myself for that, man. Not even the lawyer who's practiced law for maybe 10, 15, 20 years. <laughs> his skill. It was me, and God, me praying in the cells 15 minutes previous, that's completely forgotten about Well, we were talking this morning about honesty and selective honesty, willingness and open-mindedness, which we always keep coming back to. But for me, in the group context, the use of that is about creating the climate for engagement. Because when I've got a group, I just want them to engage, first and foremost, because they get nothing from me until I engage them. But they have to choose to engage. And in line with what you say about scientific inquiry, that for me is about process. Once I've got them engaged in that process, then I can give them an idea to play with. But I can't give them that idea until I've got them engaged. And I think certainly where we are, what I often find with some of the groups I take is that I will see the one that will not engage. And no matter how much I go through that process as an inquiry, they don't want to be part of it. And I do just let those go. But I think in terms of something tangible, what you're suggesting is as a scientific process, I think that would work very well for us over here for the simple reason that the English particularly very much insist on this. I know this. This is tangible. This is something I see. This is something I can hold on to. 
and we don't have to get to the point of anything complex. It's like teaching them German. You can teach them the basic bits of German, but don't go into those compound nouns and don't go into those tenses and don't go too much into genders. Just teach them the basic nuts and bolts because then they might decide that they want to carry on. And what we often face in a group context over here is, and I'm sure you get it over there, cases, we get people who don't want to be there. Sure. And a lot of the decisions I make are around what I try and do around those people, but I don't give them too much oxygen in the room. And I do find that once some kind of climate of engagement is established, that I can pretty much take them on whatever process I want. But I do think in a lot of the group therapy I see, there isn't necessarily a method because what I can see in what you've put in the book there, that is a method. And I think a method would certainly help. Do you not think that, Neil? I think a method always helps. It's always like nice to have different ways to approach stuff. I always come out of this word organic. You know, I love groups what just develop, but then we're always on this kind of time frame. And if you know you kind of got the group over like maybe a certain period of time and you are going to get those same numbers coming back, then like, you're pretty fortunate maybe you can recap a little bit and then kick off from where you left off but yeah it's definitely it's always nice to have different methods to work with um, it's open-mindedness isn't it you know to have it, it can bring maybe that person you're talking about Richard who doesn't want to engage you know just another little method just makes a light bulb come on you know and then all of a sudden boom then everybody's in you know and one of the things that I've found in general is if I bring up the topic of spirituality and I say, let's look at this scientifically. That's a little disarming for people sometimes. Yes. Like it brings the defenses down a little bit. Instead of saying, here, I'm going to teach you what I was taught as a kid and you're going to believe it. I that's say, what you don't want to hear. I'm going to yeah, exactly. And that's often what people expect to hear. So I say, let's look at it scientifically. Let's just see what there is. And then, Neil, to your point, to be able to say, okay, the basis of scientific thought is open-mindedness. So let's start with that and even talk about where is that difficult for us? That might be the rest of the group right there. It's just that question. Where is it difficult for us and what makes it difficult? And is that serving us? And if that's as far as we get in a group session, then great. And Neil, to your point of what you're saying there, the kind of groups that I tend to work with use here within a treatment context, which means every time I get the group together, it's a different group. There's going to be some people that are the same people. Some people were there last week. Some people that were there last week have now left because they're done with the treatment center and some new people are coming in. So it's kind of a rolling culture. And part of my job as a, a counselor at that point is to try and help create that culture. So if yeah. part of the culture is like, hey, whatever you bring is OK. Everything's open minded. I'm willing to hear your point of view. Let's see if you're willing to hear mine. Let's kick some ideas around and just see where we end up. And even having that spirit within itself, which I think is so much the ideal not the always but the ideal spirit of scientific inquiry that can be really helpful for people just to say yeah. like someone comes in and says, well i don't believe in god i say great you don't have to oh yeah. well uh, <laughs> like, like you've taken away 90 percent of the argument right there <laughs> yeah you're you don't have to believe in god this, this this will all work for you if you don't believe in anything if you want to mm -hmm. be a diehard atheist we can make spirituality work for you okay well often you have somebody's at least their curiosity and if all we've done is planted a seed that's going to blossom 10 years later presuming they survive that long cross fingers they do you never know i mean i was on a recovery meeting the other day and i heard somebody say um well you know i went to treatment and you know they tried to teach me a bunch of stuff and all that kind of stuff and none of that was for me i didn't want any part of it then i left treatment i relapsed crash burn more consequences and he says i thought about going back to treatment but i realized 
I had been listening, so I knew what I needed to do. So I got my butt into the rooms of recovery and started doing all the things they had taught me to do in treatment. Now, the folks at the treatment center are going like, oh, we didn't get anywhere with that guy. Nothing happened. He didn't make it, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't know. That person may have picked something up. And quite honestly, it's one of the reasons that I like to write books is because I may think like, well, I had, you know, I had this talk in the in the group at there with an individual or whatever, and it didn't go anywhere. And then they left and who knows, but if I write a book, it's like someone might pick this up in 30 years and say like, oh, that's a fair point. Okay, I'll try that out. And I'll never know about it. And I don't need to know because that's where I go with my own spiritual belief, my own higher power thing. I heard this at a bunch of meetings and I love it. I'm in the action business. My higher power is in the results business. So it's not up to me what happens. I can't tell you if or how many people will read the book or what they'll get out of it. That's not my business. My business is to write the book and put it out there and show up and talk to people like you and just see what happens. Back to Descartes again. I doubt, therefore I think. I think, therefore I am. <laughs> I think it's a critical question, this, how are you going to take a diehard atheist and give them spirituality? And like you say, is that you don't have to believe in God because it's, it's like the We Agnostics chapter, isn't it? It's disarming that entrenched belief system that they have that in part is a defence mechanism about fear. And I think there's a lot of fear around the idea of spirituality because it's somehow other it's alien it's something else it's not something we can just put on a page but if we give them a way in which is basically good teaching i know from many years in the classroom that if you've got a climate that works then the kids will get there and it's the same with adults really and did you find yourself confronted with that question i mean obviously i've read where you mentioned your own atheism is it something you had to confront yourself before you wrote the book specifically or was it something you wanted to inject in or that you found later around like how to find spirituality as an atheist or as an atheist it's a question that i definitely confronted in a sense before i wrote the book but long before i wrote the book in just my own experience and then noticing other people in recovery and what had been working for them and just noticing other people in the world like I know some people who say, oh, yeah, I don't really need any of the God stuff, all that kind of stuff. And yet I can see a spirituality about them, that sense of connection about them and think like they still have those admirable qualities. But specifically in the recovery world, and you may have noticed the dedication of the book says, pull that one out here because, boy, I don't want to misquote this one, says (laughs) for Kira, the most spiritual atheist I know. That's my wife. You won't know this, but she just blew me a kiss from off screen here. She's walking, walking across the background. (laughs) And... uh, I dedicated the book to her, and she is the most spiritual atheist I know. She's a very spiritual person. She's helped lead me into spirituality, and yet she very much will say, yeah, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any deity or anything like that, which is really what atheism is. So I've also seen lots of other people, and and that's part of, you know, Richard, you asked me earlier, how did you arrive at some of these conclusions that it's not about the provable connection, but about your sense of connection? And I would look at people and say, like, okay, what's working for them? And it's the sense that I'm connected, whether it's connected to the group, what my wife would say is she feels connected to the worldwide energy of all of the people in the world who are making recovery work for them. And she just can imagine or sense or draw upon that sense of there are millions of people around the world successfully working in recovery right now. I'm going to draw on that wisdom and strength. And so if someone says, well, you know, how do you pray to that? Well, prayer is just talking to your higher power. If that's your higher power, then you're just reaching out to that energy. And or I certainly experience a lot of my higher power direction through other people in recovery and just other human beings and things that I read and saying, like, okay, that's a tangible thing. If I say I'm going to turn to the groups of my higher power, it's not that I 
worship them as a deity, but I can turn to them for wisdom, guidance, strength, hope, love, all those kinds yeah. of things that I find within recovery groups. So now I can be a diehard atheist. There is no God. There is no deity. There is no whatever. But tangibly, I can say there is something working in the groups. And of course, this is not an original thought to me. This shows up, as you said, in the AA big book, and I'm sure plenty of other places before that, just to say, yep, I can draw upon the wisdom and experience and strength and hope of other people who have done the thing I'm trying to do. And to tie that in scientifically as well, as human beings, a lot of us know now we have something called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons, like looking in a mirror, we can mirror what somebody else does. We mm. don't have to only learn through direct experience. We're a very social animal. We can learn through the experience of other people and look at somebody and say, okay, I just saw him do this thing and it went okay. Maybe if I try and do the same thing and the mirror neurons on top of that give me the ability to sort of instinctively mimic it, just like a little baby looking up at her mother, yeah. the mother smiles, the baby smiles back. Now, if you actually think about that, that's a very improbable thing. How would the baby recognize what's happening and then know to move these certain muscles to mirror it? It happens very naturally. Well, we can learn through that. And even the most diehard behavioral theorists who would say everything you've learned through your direct experience at a certain point had to say, well, everything you learned through your direct experience and or the experience of watching somebody else, whether you watch them crash and burn and say, OK, I'm not going to do that, or you watch them be really successful and say, I am going to do that. We can learn an incredible amount from other people's experience. So if I just turn to that, say, I'm just going to turn to the experience of all the other people who have tried recovery and it went well or it went badly and say, that's what I'm turning to as my higher power. That can work 100%. As long as you find something that is loving, cares about you and offers direction. You know, like I was saying, like this, we've done a little recording today and I mentioned this and I mentioned this all the time. To me, there's nothing more powerful than a group. And like, yeah, like I said, and you said like, it's good things to bring like different methods into it. Maybe, I know, I haven't facilitated in like hundreds of groups. I'm facilitated in quite a few groups, but not in hundreds. And I've been more so co-facilitator in those groups. But what I've come to understand, you know, is that um, that energy, what you talk about, each group has got a different kind of energy going on there. And like that, you know, like sometimes you just need to tap into that energy at exactly the right time. Sometimes you're waiting for that sign from God, you book now, and you inject a question into somebody. Most of the time, I like doing that approach where the engagement is to answer them the question, answer them the question. This is might sound a bit manipulating, but you know, you, you allow them to kind of put themselves into a, a little corner where they've mm -hmm. done it all by themselves with their own answers. And then, okay, well, where are you going to go with that now? You ain't got nowhere to go now, have you? So now we're going to start doing some work. But it's an organic kind of process. And I think maybe that's the only kind of like approach I kind of, to me, that is a approach of energy, approach of trusting in a, a power greater than. And it's just the way I kind of feel my way around this stuff. It's just what works for Neil. Maybe that's why I could never really be a person in a kind of, a proper clinical environment where you've got to go and learn those books and kind of say, oh, we've got to do it this way. <laughs> I heard this great quote by Carl Jung, I think it was yesterday, the day before, it really struck me. Jung said, or this is how it was written anyway, said, you can learn all the theories, learn all the techniques, yeah. but when you're working with another human being, just be another human being. Boom. Jung had some bombs, man. <laughs> you yeah, just say some things and be like, oh my goodness, wow, that's a great quote. Even though I don't think of myself as being a, like a Jungian therapist or something like that, I can look at a lot of those quotes and say, like, wow, that was so on the money. But it's interesting, Neil, I was kind of thinking, circle back around to something, what you were talking about is 
you know, using the scientific approach, we can turn it on its head too and say, okay, let's work with the idea that you can do this all on your own. Let's take the scientific approach to that. So your hypothesis is you can do this 100% on your own. You don't need anybody else. Let's gather some data. What data have you found so far? How's that gone? Let's <laughs> kick it around a little bit and just see where you go. And, you know, maybe you need to answer that question first. And then start poking at it, that whole, like, did you do that on your own? Because in America, culturally, there's this idea of the self-made man. Yes. Oh, I, you know, I never needed any help from anyone. And my first thing is like, okay, who fed you when you were born? Yeah. If you can tell me you got up, started walking around, found your own food, we're going to have to kick that around a little bit because that may not be the case. And you speak English, it seems like. So who taught you English? Because you can't tell me you made that up on your own. And, you know, you drove here. Did you pave those roads? Tell me you built that car. And you know, after a while, it just starts to fall apart. So maybe we need to start with the other question first. Did you do it all on your own? Can you do it all on your own? How's that going? And then go from there. Perfect. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it any better, case. In fact, so I'm going to copyright a lot of that, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. That'll be your next book. It's that one's on the house. Certainly, when we look at stuff like Jung or or, or Descartes, for that matter, and we're looking in a treatment context in terms of addiction, I've always been of the opinion that I'll bring it in, but I'll only bring so much into the room overtly. I may well bring something in that's quite highfalutin, but that's not what I'll say to the group because that encourages yet another kind of scepticism. So I sometimes have to dress it up very much like the young quote you just given. It's very much dress it up as something else because for me, a lot of that stuff works in places. There's bits of Freud that works in places. There's bits of Jung that work in places. There's bits of Descartes that work in places. There's, there's bits of Lacan that works in places. There's all sorts. But I think going back to the method again, I think the method needs to be overtly simple, doesn't it? Because otherwise we're going to end up with the same kind of fear. Yeah, it sure helps. And, you know, I I know as a therapist and just as a guy in recovery, even, you know, completely out of a professional context, just working with another person in recovery that's skeptical and trying to find what they can find, whether we're talking about spirituality or any other thing. I know that the thing that's going to stick with somebody, and here's where the, you know, going to school helps is learning like, okay, the thing that's going to stick with somebody is the thing that they discover for themselves. That's going to be the most powerful insight they ever get. And another thing, talking about a group context, another thing that I read in my studies, which was very helpful for me and my own ego, was saying, if you interview people after a group and say, what was the most important thing you heard in group today? 75% of people will name something that another group member, not the facilitator, but another group member said. Another 20% will say it's a combination of something that another group member and the facilitator said. And only 5% will say it's something the facilitator said. So my job is to get people talking and let them talk amongst themselves, occasionally ask a question, keep on the guardrails to keep it safe, maybe nudge something, bring again, spirit of inquiry. Well, have you ever found blank or have you thought about blank and let the group grow? So my wife actually works at the same treatment center at Windmill Wellness where I work. And sometimes we'll you know, see each other in passing and how was group? And I'll say, oh man, it was great. I could have gotten and got a cup of tea. You know, the group was going. Uh, they didn't need me at that point. I'm just there to make sure it doesn't like go down in flames because somebody gets up and says, I have the answer to God or whatever. You know, we just let them go. A great group is where I'm just kind of sitting back and like mm-hmm, watching this happen because what they discover for themselves would be way more important than anything that I think I can present them. And so one of the overarching themes in my book on spirituality is I don't have the answer for you, yes. but you do. You have the answer, but I don't. Yeah. And even that not just as a manipulative way of trying to like be less threatening, but just for me, that's the reality. That is the truth. I don't have the answer for anybody else. 
but I believe that somewhere in there they do. Mm. And I'm trying to maybe hand people some tools to find that answer if they want it. So I'm not here to like chase people around with the book and say, you shall believe and find a spirituality that works for you. I'm here to say like, hey, if you want this, here's maybe some things to consider and maybe some of those will work for you. There you go. I think that's like, you know, so much of the problem, the simplicity of it, Matt. Like, you know, as humans, we just can't fathom that it's that simple, but, you know, <laughs> we've already got it. We already know it, but we just, it just can't be that simple, you know, and um, I think that's part of the problem. My first great therapist that I ever worked with, I remember, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I remember one time she said, well, you could do this and this. And I said, Lee, it can't be that simple. And she goes, well, we could make it more complicated if you want. You can have complications if you want. Throw some extra ones in. (laughs) Well, if you're going to write about complications, I think we could all do that, couldn't (laughs) we? And yet again, you know, back to the baseline, simplicity is everything, isn't it? The more I complicate, the more trouble I get into. Yeah, I find the simple guidelines are the ones that tend to cut through all the other stuff. And then from there, you know, a simple guideline that people can use to take it wherever they want. And so uh, honestly, when I was writing this one, my hope was it didn't end up as thick. I wrote my first, actually I have both books here. So here's the first one, Realistic Hope. It's Mm. not that thick. Let's see it there on camera. There we go. And then I wrote the second one and I put it on top. I was like, okay, it's about half a sec. That's probably good for a book on spirituality. (laughs) It should probably be about a half to as thick a book as the other one. (laughs) It doesn't want to be too big. No, people won't read it. I told my wife as I was writing, like, I don't know how much I have to actually say about this. Like, this might actually be a postcard or maybe a pamphlet. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> and at the end, I'm like, okay, I think it's a book. But then, I mean, I, I have friends who are authors who are publishing books that are, you know, 30 to 50 pages long, less than 100 pages each one. It's just a small series. And I'm like, okay. I think when I went in to write the first book, I had this idea that it must be a tome, a big, thick book yeah, that, yeah. that proves something about my ego or whatever. And I'm proud of everything it said. But after that, I went like, oh, yeah, it could be anything. It's just let's see how long it turns out to be, which hopefully is that same open mindedness of like, hey, let's just see what it is instead of what I think it's supposed to be. I've only really speed read through, but I think you've covered a lot of angles on spirituality because it's important that we look at these perspectives and perspectives that people coming into recovery or into the room full stop the perspective they might have because there are various blocks and in the recovery environment there are always blocks and there are always misperceptions there are always inherent core beliefs there are all sorts of things that we need to consider before we even say the word and in that respect I think you've covered quite a lot of it I'm not going to say everything no. <laughs> I'm not going to say everything either because no one can do everything <laughs> no no I, I was actually warned by friends and relatives oh man you're gonna write a book on spirituality first of all there's a lot of those second of all like how much are you going to read and I actually said I'm not going to read a lot of other people's books on spirituality because for one thing, I don't want to go and crib some parts without realizing it, you know, like yeah, can't really plagiarize something. Yeah. And B, there's so much stuff out there. But I, I remembered, a, a, this is a different quote, and I don't know who said it originally because I heard it on someone else's podcast when they were being interviewed, but they said, we are best suited to help the person we used to be. Ah. And so I thought, let me sit down and write the book that I kind of wish I'd had when I started recovery and let that be enough. Yeah. You know, somebody who is currently struggling with things that I used to struggle with or struggle less with these days, I'll write this book for them. And I have no idea how many there are out there, but these are the things that I found helpful for me and that other people have said were helpful for them when I pass them along. And let's just put that together in a place. And then, like I said, a lot of learning as I went along to a lot of research and some fun things ended up in the book. 
simply because I was using Google Scholar a lot. And so I'd look up a search term to try and learn something and then something else would pop up and I'd see a research paper title and think like, oh, well now I need to know about that. What is that one about? What, what is forest bathing? What does that even mean? Things like that. And, and so I, I see the same literature. So forest bathing, as it turns out, it's a Japanese concept and there's an actual Japanese term for it, which I put in the book, but don't remember off the top of my head. Forest bathing. I thought it would be like finding people in Japanese baths out in the forest. But what it actually is, is, is they mean it in the same sense as sunbathing, bathing yourself oh. in the rays of the sun. So forest bathing is something they could actually get prescribed for mental health. The idea of you need to go and walk along a, a certain amount of time, walk along paths in the forest and just take it in, take in the oxygen, take in yeah. the atmosphere, all that kind of stuff. And I'm reminded years and years ago, I had a colleague who was a wilderness guide and also a therapist. And he said he wanted to, at some point as in part of his career goal was to be able to establish the diagnosis of, he said, NDD, nature deficit disorder, that people are uh -huh. suffering from a nature deficit disorder. So yeah, as I read one paper, I'd run into the title of another paper and think like, oh, okay, now I need to know about that. Well, that's probably gonna end up in the book. But as Brian Eno said, at a certain point, we just have to say it's done. Uh, I think you referred to it as, you know, some artistic works are done just because you give up. I wouldn't say it was quite as bad as that with this, but just got to a certain point. And actually, I'm going to go with Winston Churchill on this one. This is a, another one of those great Churchill quotes where he said, you know, a book starts out as a dalliance and then it becomes a mistress and then it becomes your master. And then just when you think the beast is going to kill you, you slay it and fling its corpse out into the public. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you. That moment when you say, okay, that's it. No matter what else comes up, I'm not putting anything else in the book. It's that's done. It. <laughs> done. Yeah. Before we go, obviously, if you've been affected by anything you've heard, if anything you've heard has resonated with you concerning yourself or anybody else that you know, then there is help out there. There are plenty of places you can find them merely by Googling. And we're always here, not that we have all the answers, but we are here on Flat Out Recovery on Twitter and on Facebook and at podcastatchangesuk.org. And we'll leave you with a final word on your book, Casey. Is it, the floor is yours. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back. And yes, so I got my old book, <laughs> the old book, it's 10 months old. My previous book, Realistic Hope, Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. And the one we talked about most today, the new book is called Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer, and it is available both in print and ebook form through Amazon and probably other vendors as well. And then I have my own podcast called Addiction and the Family. Love to help anyone in any way that I can. You can also reach me at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com or through my Twitter account. The handle is at addictionfamily. And so it's wonderful being here. Thank you so much. And I wish the best for everybody out there that's listening. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you both for having me. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you.